Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation for UPMC. I am so excited for today's episode because we are going to explore everything about Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is, of course, an incredibly common but also incredibly complex organism that we have all treated or will treat at some point in our careers. We've said it on this podcast before, Pseudomonas is such an intricate organism. And what we're really referring to that is how complex its genome is and therefore how many different resistance mechanisms can exist in concert with this pathogen. And so today we are going to unravel that tangled web and describe all of those resistance mechanisms and our available treatment options. This episode was supported by an unrestricted medical education grant for AbbVie, and we thank our sponsors for the opportunity to talk about this wonderful subject. And without further ado, let's introduce our expert guests today. So our first guest is Dr. Maggie Minogue, who's an assistant professor of medicine and clinical pharmacy specialist at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Dr. Minogue graduated pharmacy school from the University of Texas at Austin and then completed her PGY-1 residency at Parkland Health and Hospital System in Dallas. She then completed a second year infectious diseases fellowship at the Center for Anti-Infective Research and Development in Hartford, Connecticut. Her research interests include gram-negative infections, beta-lactamase inhibitors, PKPD, and multidrug resistance. She's published over 25 papers, including most recently two very nice reviews on beta-lactamase inhibitors, which really complement her PKPD work on beta-lactamase exposures, one of my other favorite topics, and the implications that that has for treatment, which will be really important for our pseudomonas discussion today. Maggie, welcome to Breakpoints. Hello, friends. I am so excited to be speaking with you today on such a fun and interesting topic. As you mentioned, pseudomonas is extremely complex. Therefore, sometimes misunderstood or perhaps oversimplified, its unique characteristics deserve some time in the spotlight. So I'm glad we're talking about it today. I'm excited to be part of this team. We are very excited to have you. And we are also thrilled to have our second guest, Dr. Antonio Oliver, who's the chief of microbiology at San Asbestos University Hospital in Mallorca, which is very cool. Maggie and I are very jealous. I'm sitting in Pittsburgh and it's like raining as usual. Um, Dr. Oliver is a world leading expert in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. He's the PI on the research group with his team for most of their work in antimicrobial resistance and multidrug resistant pathogens. And he's published over 300 papers and leading groundbreaking research all about Pseudomonas, especially with biofilms, which is very neat. We'll talk about today and the different mechanisms of resistance. So Dr. Oliver, we are thrilled to have you with us today. Hello, it is a real pleasure and a honor for me to talk with you today about Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that is a highly concerning pathogen causing both life-threatening acute infections in the nosocomial setting, as well as lifelong lasting infections in some diseases such as cystic fibrosis patients. Indeed, uh, uh, resistance in Pseudomonas aeruginosa is a major threat and is first uh, due to a remarkable intrinsic uh, resistance in the first place. In second place, due to an extraordinary capacity of this pathogen for uh, increase this resistance to nearly all available uh, agents through the selection of mutations in the chromosome of these pathogens. And third, 
because of the recent uh, global dissemination of uh, specific multi-drug resistance clones that we call uh, the high-risk clones that are associated additionally with transferable resistant mechanisms. Yes, it is very exciting. And, it, and I think let's start there with some background before we dive into talking about the resistance mechanism. So Pseudomonas aeruginosa, something anyone in the infectious diseases, healthcare space, has heard of and often in the research spaces. So this is a aerobic gram negative rod. It's found commonly in plants, animals, human environments, soil, water, everywhere. We especially think of it in human environments like ventilators and dare I say hot tubs. Um, Pseudomonas is not a part of the normal human microbiome, but we know that up to 10% of our patients, if not more at this point in time, can become colonized and we see it commonly. We actually have a pretty substantial amount of beta-lactams and other drugs that are active against pseudomonas, and we'll get into that later in the podcast. And we'll walk through those different classes and how they may or may not be impacted. Um, but there are a decent amount of treatment options. The problem is pseudomonas is so complex. It has, again, it has such a massively large genome. For perspective for our listeners, it's much larger than say E. coli or some of our other Enterobacterialis, which means that Pseudomonas is highly adaptable to the environments it's found in and its resistance is very complex, which means that we can't really just look at the phenotype alone of the culture and susceptibility report we get back and use that to predict exactly what mechanisms of resistance are present to then know what optimal therapy we should use. And so it is trickier than our Enterobacterialis and, it, and there is a lot to explore here. So that being said, that's where I want to start again. I want to start with describing and defining the mechanisms of resistance in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So this base foundational understanding on which we're going to build why all of our drugs work. There are many, we've said that many times, and it's fascinating how they vary from the other gram negatives. So when we talk about AMP-C in Pseudomonas, that's not the same as the AMP-C in Enterobacter colicchiae or the AMP-C in even Acinetobacter or something like that. So it's important to know how they're unique to the organism, and it's important to know how they impact the different beta-lactams in particular, that is the drug class we're going to focus on the most in different ways. And when we talk about resistance, we've done this on this podcast before, we always frame resistance into three main buckets. Drugs have to get into the organism, they have to survive long enough to bind to their target site of action, and they have to be able to then bind or affect that target site, whatever that may be. So efflux pumps and porin channel mutations are two main categories of resistance we will discuss that impact drug entry into the organism. And then beta-lactamase enzymes may hydrolyze the drug before it can exert its action. And again, beta-lactamases are only going to come into play for beta-lactams, and that's going to be our focus. But there are other, other enzymes, aminoglycoside-modifying enzymes in particular, that may impact other antibiotic classes as well. And then finally, and again, focusing on beta-lactams, there are target site mutations in the form of penicillin-binding proteins. They may mutate, and they may prevent beta-lactam binding. But... In that context and in that framework, I want to start with describing porin channel mutations in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And so to our audience, buckle up because throughout this podcast, we are going to throw a lot of letters at you as we talk about different genes, different porins, different enzymes, different efflux pumps. Um, but we will put context to that as we go. And so what porin channels and mutations should clinicians be familiar with in Pseudomonas? Yes, uh, as you mentioned, the resistance, particularly to beta-lactams, depend on basically in the interplay between the expression of porins, efflux pumps, and beta-lactamases. No? 
And, and in fact, the, the higher uh, basal uh, level of expression of efflux uh, pumps and the lower number of, uh, of uh, pouring channels as compared with other grand negative pathogens is one of the main reasons for the higher intrinsic resistance of Pseudomonas aeruginosa. If we talk about porins, of course, the major porin that we all should be aware of is OPRD. OPRD is the main porin used by carbapenems to reach the periplums, and thus mutations that inactivate uh, uh, this uh, porin is are the one of the main uh, resistant mechanisms to these uh, compounds, particularly among the imipenem or uh, meropenem. Thus. Uh, uh, in addition to, to, to the inactivation of the, of the porin itself, uh, we have to be aware that OPRD is uh, a very tightly, uh, tightly regulated uh, porin, and the expression of this porin is controlled by several uh, two-component regulatory systems. And therefore, a mutation in these regulatory systems may lead to the repression, of, uh, for that reason, the lack of expression of, of OPRD. Uh, very uh, uh, common examples are relevant examples of this type of mutations are mutations in the two-component uh, regulator uh, MEX-ST that in addition to uh, control OPRD expression, control the expression of a, a, relevant, a relevant flux band that is MEX-EF-OPRM. And another uh, relevant example is the two-component regulator PAR-RS. Mutations in this uh, in this two-component regulator lead to the repression of OPRD and to the overexpression, for example, of the efflux pump MEX XY OPRM. So we have some uh, coordinated uh, resistance mechanisms affecting both porins and efflux pumps to, to, to consider. So in summary, uh, OPRD mediated resistance to, to carbapenems can be uh, caused either, either by the direct inactivation of the of the of the porin by a mutation in the coding sequences or by a mutation in a regulatory gene that frequently uh, coordinates with other uh, resistant mechanisms such as efflux pumps that's so interesting i didn't realize that pseudomonas compared to are you saying compared to other gram negative pathogens has a lower just number of porin channels at baseline which is part of its intrinsic resistance mm -hmm. that's yes. so that's so interesting i didn't i didn't realize that and then i know you mentioned so carbapenems i think we're familiar with as being heavily impacted by porin channel mutations, imipenem and miropenem. Are there other beta lactams? So of the cephalosporins, is there one more than another that would be more impacted by porin channel loss or mutations? Well, OPRD is, although it has some impact in other beta lactam, is very is quite specific to, to carbapenems. There are okay. other other porins that may have uh, an effect on uh, on other beta-lactams, among them is particularly not worth the OPRF. OPRF is the, the major, uh, I mean, the most abundant uh, uh, porin uh, of Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but it is a, a non-specific uh, channel that has a pleiotropic large effect, but only, uh, let's say, marginal effect on the level of resistance to a broad uh, number of, uh, of not only uh, beta-lactam, but uh, nearly all beta-lactans. So I will say it is a broader effect, but a much lower level effect as compared with OPRD. Okay. And then last question. So we, at least looking at our antibiograms in the United States, I mean, we've used a lot of carbapenems that's led to carbapenem resistance and imiropenem is the worst empiric anti-pseudomonal for 
for Pseudomonas aeruginosa in, in my ICUs. I think our susceptibility rate's at 42%, whereas the cephalosporins and piptazo were still in the 60s to 70%. And I don't think a lot of clinicians really realize that, that carbapenems are actually not great for Pseudomonas empirically anymore, at least at centers that have more resistance. So hearing that and seeing that, it seems like resistance develops really quickly to carbapenems and pseudo, and we, and we think that's largely porin mutations. So it feels like the porin channel mutations happen easily. But then on the flip, I've always kind of been taught and thought that porin entry in and out of the cell is so essential for bug life because that's how they're getting nutrients and everything else as well. So I guess, I don't know how the best way to ask this question, but do porin channel mutations happen easily? And is there an extreme fitness cost to the organism for that? Meaning would they revert back to wild type when you stop exposing that isolate to a carbapenem or are porin channel mutations more complicated and they take a while to develop and, and then once they're there, they're there. Well, uh, in fact, OPRD mutations are not associated with a, with a major uh, cost for the, for the bacteria. OPRD okay. And actually, uh, I mean, uh, there is some uh, works that even say that, uh, that OPRD mutant may even be more, more virulent than the wild type uh, uh, strain. So, I mean, with OPRF, you will have such an effect of a, of a fitness reduction or, or a virulence reduction, but not with OPRD. So OPRD is a, it's a quite a common mutation. It happens quite frequently, but it's uh, in addition to that, it's, uh, it's fixed uh, uh, also frequently because it's not associated with a, a very large uh, uh, cost for the bacteria. And, and in fact, uh, many of the epidemic that we, we may talk about this later, many of the epidemic strains of uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa are actually uh, deficient in OPRD and they are very transmissible. So it's not a major problem for the fitness of the bacteria. Interesting. All right. Pseudo is just smarter than us in many ways. Speaking of being smart and complex mechanisms of interaction, let's move on to efflux pumps then. Um, Cause this also gets quite complicated again to our audience. There's a lot of letters coming your way. Um, when we dive into the main players with efflux pumps and the various antibacterial agents that they may or may not impact. So Maggie, do you want to kick us off here talking about efflux pumps and the role they have in pseudomonas resistance? Sure. These are really interesting because if you think about it, pseudomonas efflux pumps are an interesting biological design which were intended to pump out toxic environmental compounds from the cytoplasm that ultimately may threaten the, the integrity of the cytoplasmic membrane. So it's not surprising or shocking that our antimicrobials are susceptible to this exit strategy. Um, and so there are about four, perhaps five well-described efflux pump systems in Pseudomonas. Most of you have probably heard about MEX-AB OPRM, which is the most familiar system with, within all pseudomonas isolates, expressing at various levels, which causes the intrinsic resistance we often see to our antimicrobials, such as amoxicillin and cefuroxime. Um, so wild type, our more susceptible isolates tend to have lower expression of this efflux pump, the MEX-AB OPRM. However, mutations at various sites within the system, such as the MEX-R repressor gene, can result in efflux overexpression, resulting in increases in MIC. So it's very interesting, and it's a very complex system that can impact 
different antimicrobials depending on the degree of expression that that efflux pump has. Now there are other efflux pump systems as I mentioned before, um, but these tend to have fewer antimicrobial substrates than the OPRM does um, and also has differences in pump expression. So adding to the complexity of Pseudomonas, not only do we have multiple systems in place, but again, their expression and the substrates that they impact um, vary across um, the systems. And so when we think about what drugs are most impacted by efflux, uh, most commonly we think about beta-lactams and some aminoglycosides um, tend to be more susceptible to this evacuation route. Uh, but as I mentioned before, each efflux system has different affinities for different antimicrobial classes. For the carbapenems, meropenem tends to be most impacted by the efflux pumps. However, um, emipenem may also be targeted, especially in the setting of MEX-EF OPRN. For the inhibitors, actually, when we think of our beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations, those are not immune to efflux pumps either. So we have to take that into consideration when we're deciding treatment options and what potential resistant mechanisms are at play here. So um, avibactam, actually one of our newer beta-lactamase inhibitors actually has been described to be subject to efflux pump, whereas relibactam tends to be more stable. Importantly, antimicrobial exposure can induce upregulation of different efflux systems, which can potentially impact the functionality of membrane proteins, as well as we alluded to um, with Dr. Oliver. Thanks, Maggie. That was awesome. I think a, point, a few important points to dissect there. And then Antonio, I'm going to ask if you have anything to add. Um, but first, mm -hmm. so efflux pumps and porin channel mutations work in synergy, right? And so Antonio started with this, but essentially if you have low level efflux pump expression and porn mutations, you may not see a lot of resistance, but if you have both expressed a lot, then you're going to see much higher MICs in our, in our organisms to our, to our drugs. Sorry. I think the other really important thing you said is that the inhibitors, the beta-lactamase inhibitors are subject to these things as well. So just like the parent drug gets into the cell through porins perhaps, and just like it can be effluxed out, that is also true of inhibitors. So they need to get into the cell somehow and they need to stay there in order to block the enzymes in the periplasmic space. And so I don't know that we necessarily think about that as much as we do the parent drug, but just like when we talk about tazobactam for ESBLs, the concentration of the inhibitor matters. And I think that comes into play when we talk new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors for the treatment of Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Antonio, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, just uh, to add uh, a little bit, a little bit more complexity to the to the subject of the efflux pumps. No, we, so, we love uh, complexity. Yeah, <laughs> dive yeah, in. <laughs> no. Because I mean, yeah, you can say the the efflux pump play a major role in intrinsic resistance and also in acquired resistance through up regulation by mutations in regulators. No? But what we are seeing in in very uh, recent uh, years is that resistance, particularly to the novel, uh, novel beta-lactam, such as tetolosine uh, for example, also can apply to, to novel uh, beta-lactamase inhibitors, is that resistance can be achieved also by mutations in the, not just leading to the overexpression, by leading to the structural modification of the efflux pump itself. No? So through oh. mutations in the substrate uh, recognitions loops, 
that is the periplaxmix substrate recognition loop, you can modify, modify the substrate of the efflux pump. So you, we all know that teptolosane, for example, is not a, a major substrate by, for efflux pump, but resistance can be achieved by specific mutations leading to the modification of the structure of the efflux pump, making it able to extrude uh, teptolosine. So just to, I mean, it, this is something that we will see uh, more in the, uh, in the recent year. No? The, the, the efflux pump that cannot only be uh, modified expression, but also we can, or natural selection can modify the, the substrate that, uh, that the efflux pump recognizes an efflux. So no one is safe. No. <laughs> That's fascinating because we know, I, I think, um, and I think Maggie and I are probably both more familiar with the enzyme side of the story, but we know that mutations in beta-lactamases can change the hydrolytic property of the enzyme. And so we know that huh? that can make, you know, it'll be a super ceftazidime hydro hydrolyzer if a certain mutation is in place, whereas low level basal level may not hydrolyze ceftazidime that efficiently. I did not know that was true of efflux pumps. So you're saying that these mutations can basically make them kick drugs out of the cell even more efficiently and even faster. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. That's so interesting. Okay. I think the other thing I wanted to add to efflux, I, and again, just recently and near to dear to my heart, since I work with Ryan and I feel like if I don't make fun of him on every podcast, I'm, I'm not even hosting breakpoints. Um, but I do collaborate with Ryan Shields. Um, and he recently published a paper in CAD February, 2022. So just a couple months ago about how evolution, how patients treated with imipenemrelobactam for pseudomonas urgenosa, which largely came out of the ceftalozane tazobactam shortage. Oh. And we had to use alternative agents when we didn't have um, ceftalozane tazo. And if ceftazidine maybe bactam was resistant, we were then treating these patients with imirel. And we had five patients that developed resistance on therapy. And when he did whole genome sequencing, lo and behold, <laughs> the main mechanism of resistance was in fact efflux, which mm -hmm. Yeah. Maggie, as you said, traditionally, we thought relobactium was specifically paired with imipenem because it did not get effluxed in, in original studies. And then now it looks like it does, which is likely because of this alteration in, in those efflux pumps and the efficiency with which they can efflux. And so I just I have to smile because Ryan not only breaks the drugs, but doubles down and is like, you know, I'm going to really <laughs> show you that even though we tried to design the molecule specifically for this one particular mechanism, the bugs still win and still mutate. And I think that's a really neat paper. Um, and he has a really nice table in there showing the evolution of the resistance mechanism. So if people want to check that out, we can put the, the reference to that in our, in our show notes. But that was really interesting to me. Okay, so I want to summarize efflux and porins before we get into enzymes, because enzymes are a much longer discussion. And I think I just like to kind of run this checklist, especially for learners that may be listening to the podcast, fellows, pharmacy residents, et cetera. It's nice to kind of like put these things into context. So when we're talking about antimicrobials that are active against pseudomonas, we talk about carbapenems, which we've mentioned a lot already. So miropenem, imipenem, and then doripenem still is around. I know at least in Japan, they have doripenem in some other non-US countries. So I will acknowledge the existence of doripenem, although RIP in the United States. Do you still have doripenem, Antonio? No, no. No, yeah. Yohei was telling me they have it in Japan. So I like, just feel like I should acknowledge that. Anyway, okay. So our three carbapenems, porin loss, important mechanism of resistance, efflux important? Like, do we generally think carbapenems get effluxed a lot or is that not as relevant of a oh, mechanism? Yeah. I mean, uh, imipenem is not, is not uh, a substrate of, uh, for efflux pumps. Okay. But 
BANMERAPNM, it is a very good substrate for, but especially for MEX AB OPRM. A little bit also for MEX XY OPRM, but particularly for MEX AB OPRM. And in fact, the resistance to MEROPNM typically is caused by the combination of the inactivation of OPRD and the overexpression of MEX AB OPRM. This is the most common resistance mechanisms to MEROPNM. Whereas uh, for IMIPNM is the inactivation of OPRD, but linked to the expression of the beta-lactamase MC that we may talk uh, later on. No? So, but, so IMIPNM and MEROPNM are very different from the perspective of the efflux pump. Cool. Okay, so IMIPNM not really, we think of at least in no. kind of more wild type, not if we talked no, about no. the, you can get mutations and resistance, but and then, but MEROPNM, yes. Okay, that's our carbapenem. So cephalosporin, so we're talking ceftazidime, Cefepime, we'll leave cefiteracol for a later discussion. So ceftazidime and cefepime, are those highly impacted by porin loss? Not really by okay. porin loss, no, no, not too much. Just a bit uh, for OPRF uh, inactivation, but not really for, for other porin. It is uh, particularly cefepime is highly impacted by efflux pump overexpression, of course, very, very high. Okay. For, uh, at least three of them, MEX AB, MEX XY, and MEX CD OPRJ are very, very active against, uh, uh, against Cefepim. And Ceftacidim is uh, only uh, affected by MEX AB and not, not too much. No? Maybe we could talk also about here about uh, Ceftolothane because, or maybe we can leave it yep. for later or. Yep, let's transition into ceftolazine and cefiderocol then. So how do they compare no, to I our... Mean, maybe you can talk later on about cefiderocol, but ceftolazine that is quite similar to, to cestacidim. One of the good points about ceftolazine that is the, the, uh, it is uh, a, a poorer substrate for the, for the efflux pump, no? that's even uh, AB, no? That's why I told you before about the I mean, it is a poor substrate for the natural flux pump, but they can be mutated to, to, to for a more efficient uh, extrusion of septolozane. No? Yeah, and that's how we, I think, how we understand septolozane was this awesome cephalosporin for an awesome anti-pseudomonal cephalosporin because in a baseline it does avoid porin loss, it doesn't get efflux, and it binds tighter to penicillin binding protein. So it's a really awesome molecule at first until we red resistance, but um, piperacillin. So to round out our beta-lactams beta in existence, so piptazo, do we think of piptazo as being heavily influenced by porin loss? Not by porin loss. Okay. Like uh, testastive, yes, uh, a bit uh, by efflux, makes a BOBRM particularly, but not, not by porin loss. So not porin, but yes, deflux there, cool. And then fluoroquinolones, we haven't talked about fluoroquinolones yet, but obviously a very important class for our patients with pseudomonas being the only oral option to treat pseudomonas. Um, fluoroquinolones, I, we know most of us, I think are familiar. If you do see, and we talked about this with carbapenems, if you do see the MEX, AB, OPRM, um, efflux overexpression, a really common phenotype that we see is miropenem resistant, fluoroquinolone resistant, but it might be cephalopeme susceptible. Um, and so fluoroquinolones, I think we know are impacted by efflux and can be substantially. Are they really impacted by porin loss though? Because we didn't talk about that when we talked porins. Yes, I mean, um, the, uh, the inactivation of OPRD has a, as 
not too big, but uh, it does impact the demises of, uh, of quinolones. But, uh, but again, uh, the most relevant uh, uh, permeability related uh, resistant mechanism to quinolone is, is uh, efflux pump. All the four major efflux pump, uh, pumps have uh, the capacity to, to extrude the, extrude the uh, fluoroquinolone. So undoubtedly the, the major resistant mechanism to quinolones is not porins, are efflux pumps. And then last but not least, when we talk aminoglycosides and polymyxins, again, rounding out our discussion of porin channel mutations and efflux pumps, really keep getting the drug into the cell and keeping it there. Um, aminoglycosides and polymyxins are unique, right? In that they don't really use standard porin channels and they um, arguably are not really impacted by standard efflux pumps. But I guess you could argue that a porin it's not a porn mutation per se, but aminoglycosides and polymyxins are both, um, you can see resistance by changes in the outer membrane. So effectively, these are typically positively charged molecules. The gram-negative cell is negatively charged and the gram-negative cell can alter that and alter the lipid layer um, in order to confer resistance or to prevent those drugs from getting into the cell or just binding on the outer membrane and, and causing the um, damage that it can cause there. Any, anything to add to that? That's my basic high-level understanding, but I'm by no means an expert in this space. So when we think aminoglycosides and polymyxin and outer membrane um, mm -hmm. resistance, what should our listeners know there? Yes, uh, this is again not related to porins, but yes, it's to the interaction with the outer membrane, particularly LPS. I mean, the, the, the mutations that modify the, the LPAs, uh, the LPS and confer uh, uh, polymyxin resistance, they many... Frequently, they show also uh, cross resistance to 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 amino glycosides. So mutations, for example, in the PMRB uh, uh, transcriptional uh, uh, regulator that modify the the, the lipid A of uh, of the of the lipopolysaccharide are involved in the in resistance to amino glycosides as well as uh, polymyxins. No? And regarding efflux pumps, uh, there is a major efflux pump that play in a a role in amino glycosides uh, intrinsic uh, resistance that is MEX XY OPRM. I mean, this is an inducible efflux pump, and amino glycosides are able to induce uh, the expression of the efflux pump. So, so if you get uh, to uh, uh, eliminate the, the MEX XY efflux uh, pump, the, the MICs of the amino glycosides uh, go uh, much lower than the in a wild type strain. So they play a, this efflux pump plays a major role in intrinsic resistance. And also the upregulations of the MEX-SY through mutations in, for example, in, um, in MEX-CETA, that is the major regulator, does increase the, the uh, resistance to amino glycosides. And of course, there is something that is called the adaptive uh, resistance to amino glycosides. That is, let's say, uh, the in vivo resistance to amino glycosides that is uh, caused by the, by the induction of a Mexis Y. So yes, they do play a major role here. Interesting. Okay, so efflux important for aminoglycosides, maybe not so much for polymyxins. Very fascinating. Maggie, anything to wrap up efflux and porins before we move into beta lactamases? Anything think, we missed? I think just an overview, just to know the mechanism of action, it helps us deduce or understand what potential resistant mechanisms the antimicrobials will be susceptible to. So I just, 
the nerd comes out when you start thinking about aminoglycosides, you know, how they gain access um, to into the cell compared to beta lactams and why porins, you know, are not a major resistant mechanism for aminoglycosides is just so amazing. I couldn't agree more. I think this is so interesting. And with that, let's talk beta lactamases because mechanism is important here, especially when we talk about our new beta lactamase inhibitors. Um, and Antonio, I'm glad you started to lay the foundation of intrinsic and adaptive resistance, which of course the last piece of that puzzle would be acquired resistance, which we're going to, beta lactamases can be all of the above. Let's talk about intrinsic to Pseudomonas aeruginosa first. I think we all know that there's AMPCs present, but what does that mean? And then are there any other basal level enzymes that are intrinsic to pseudo that we should be familiar with if you want to start us here? Okay, uh, the major uh, intrinsic beta lactamases of pseudomonas aeruginosa is AMPC. So this is an inducible uh, uh, enzyme no? that confers intrinsic uh, resistance to all beta lactams that are both able to induce the, the expression of AMPC and that are efficiently hydrolyzed by it. No? So confers intrinsic resistance, we all know well, to amino, amino penicillins, uh, combination with uh, inhibitors such as clavulanate, clavulanic acid, uh, and first, second, and third generation cephalosporins and cephamycin. So that would be the, the intrinsic resistance, but uh, as we, can, uh, we have said, uh, it is, uh, pseudomonas aeruginosa has multiple uh, regulators of the expression of AMC that can be mutated, conferring uh, a de-repressed phenotype, phenotype that overexpress uh, at high levels AMC, conferring resistance to, I mean, the classical antisodomonal cephalosporins, uh, cefthacidim and cefepine, antisodomonal penicillins uh, such as piperacillin, also in combination with tesobactan, and confer resistance to uh, the monobactams such as treonam. No? So these, uh, these mutations no, that can be due in, in multiple genes, AMD, AMPAR, uh, PVP4 is also a major regulator. So it's a frequent uh, mechanism that can be uh, uh, selected by, by treatment with, uh, with uh, all, uh, all of these compounds. So AMC, therefore, uh, plays a major role in treating that resistant and acquire resistant to these uh, 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 anti beta lactams. And in combination with uh, OPRD deficiency, play a major role in imipenem resistance. And also, and not that much as for imipenem, but also contributes to meropenem uh, resistance when overexpressed. So imipenem is also actually the, the most potent inducer of the expression of AMC. So even, even if imipenem is not highly hydrolyzed, the expression is so high in the, in the presence of imipenem that AMC is a major driver of uh, resistance to imipenem, particularly when combined with an, a deficiency in OPRD. So there are other beta-lactamases in the, in the chromosome of uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa that are not uh, re really regulated. I mean, there, there is a basal expression, but uh, not really mechanisms for uh, efficient overexpression, that is uh, an oxacillinase, that is OXA50, also called POX-B, that has some capacity to hydrolyze meropenem, uh, not, not really mepenem, but just uh, meropenem, and when overexpressed, it can contribute to resistance. But this is very, very, very uncommon in, in clinical strains. And there is also a, a, an intrinsic uh, 
enzyme that, that is called an imipenemase that is PIP1, but is, I mean, it has some capacity to hydrolyze imipenem, but uh, the contribution to intrinsic, intrinsic or acquired system is marginal as, at best. So I will say that the, that the only uh, relevant intrinsic uh, beta-lactamases uh, or pseudomonas adenosa is ampicillin. Awesome. To um, emphasize that, I thought that was an interesting point that Antonio made that about combination resistant mechanisms, because as you mentioned before, that, you know, this isn't the AMP-C we see in interbacteriales or interbacter perhaps, um, but rather when we see AMP-C in combination with a porin or efflux mutation, our traditional AMP-C antibiotics may not be as reliable in this scenario as we would see in the interbacteriales, because traditionally those are more beta-lactamase resistant mechanisms that aren't coupled with these efflux or porin mutations. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Maggie. Can you, that's a good time, I think, to put a lot of the awesome things Antonio just said into context, especially for clinicians that may be listening. So we have three novel, four, four novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. We have ceftaltazole, ceftaz-AV, imirel, and miropenem vaberbactam. So when we think about AMPC enzymes and um, both intrinsic and then um, they can, you know, have mutations and, and either be hyperexpressed or um, whatnot, can you kind of walk us through the four beta-lactam beta-lactamase inhibitors and why or why not that um, that beta-lactamase inhibitor may be helpful for AMPC expression in particular when we talk about it in the context of the parent drug? So I guess what I'm asking you to do is go through ceftolazine, tazobactam, mm -hmm. ceftazidine, avibactam, imipenemrelobactam and miropenem vaberbactam and say, why or why not that combo may be good in the, in the presence of AMPC hyperexpression. And Maggie, if you want to start there. Yeah, perfect. This is one of my favorite conversations to have. So starting with septolzane tazo, so tazobactam is not anything different from our piperacillin tazobactam. Um, it's been around, we know what it covers. It's really traditionally our basic like TEMS and SHIVs but doesn't cover, um, it can have potential activity against some CTXMs in vitro, but clinical data has not proven it to be reliable. Um, so in the setting of Pseudomonas, tazobactam doesn't offer much from a basal AMPC production, rather it's the ceftolazine doing the majority of the work because it's, um, its structural design helps it become more stable, to um, AMPC production, and as we discussed before, other potential resistant mechanisms. And so depending on your uh, geographic location and your resistant mechanisms at play for your pseudomonas, um, so tolzine tazobactam may or may not be your first line option, because as I mentioned before, tazo does not broaden our activity against other beta-lactamases or carbapenemases. Now looking at ceftazidime avibactam, the opposite is true here where ceftazidime, our active beta-lactam has been around um, for several years now, um, but the novel portion of this agent is avibactam. Avibactam is fun because it has activity against class A, class C, and some um, wing combined with ceftazidime, some class D enzymes. So when we think of AMPC in this scenario, 
ceftazidime AV Bactam should have decent activity in the setting of um, basal AMPC production. Imipenemrelli Bactam is very similar to ceftazidime AV Bactam where it has um, class A and class C activity, but as we mentioned before, there's newer data to suggest that um, Relly Bactam is also susceptible to various resistant mechanisms. Um, and Meropenem Vapor Bactam, I like to think of this as more of a KPC type agent. Um, it hasn't really shown to improve MICs to multidrug resistant pseudomonas compared with meropenem alone. But again, that depends on your geographic region and what resistant mechanisms you're dealing with. Um, but traditionally, we don't use meropenem vapor bactam as an agent for our multidrug resistant pseudomonas, um, mostly because we like to use the vapor bactam for things like KPCs. Yeah, and I think uh... I agree. I think to put some of that into context and then Antonio, I'll see if you have anything to add. Um, so some interesting, interesting things to tie together, Maggie, from what you said and what Antonio said is that, especially when we're looking at our carbapenem beta-lactamase inhibitor combination. So imipenem relibactam versus meropenem baberbactam. I get this question a lot on rounds and from colleagues, and I'm sure both of you do as well. You know, how come imipenem relibactam is something we think of a anti-pseudomonal agent and meropenem baberbactam we don't. And I think it's really the key in what Antonio said and that imipenem is one of the most potent inducers of AMC. And so the expression of AMC in the presence of imipenem is astonishingly high, despite the fact that imipenem alone is structurally stable. And so you start to, the enzymes just win. When you make more, they're going to beat the drug. And so the addition of relibactam there is protective and it restores activity. And we see anti-pseudomonal activity Whereas meropenem is, is not the same. It doesn't induce as much and it's more structurally stable, arguably. And so vapor bactam, maybe you drop a dilution, you know, maybe an MIC of four goes to two. Um, but at the end of the day, the vapor bactam isn't helping that much. Vapor bactam is also not as potent of an AMPC inhibitor. And so those are the, the differences. And I do think that's very important for our listeners to take home from this podcast. Now let's talk ceftazidime avibactam. So ceftazidime is kind of lame, right? Like it's a very old cephalosporin. It's been around a long time. It did its job. I'm sorry, that probably wasn't very respectful to ceftazidime. We should probably, it's, it's been a good workhorse for a long time, but ceftazidime is, you know, it gets hydrolyzed by everything, ESBLs, AMC, whatever. And so the addition of avibactam is very helpful there, restores ceftazidime activity because the predominant mechanism of resistance is AMPC, as we talked about, porins, not so much, efflux maybe. Um, and so AV Bactam, very helpful there. You see anti-pseudomonal activity when you have isolates that are resistant to our standard beta-lactams. And then ceftolazine, Tezo, I, I love what you said, Maggie, and I think this is an interesting story. Tezo Bactam's lame. So it's like, we have a really awesome parent drug and an old inhibitor, and then a really old lame parent drug and an awesome hey, inhibitor. I take offense to and that. it's like, it's like, why? Well, no, <laughs> yeah, no, you love Tezo Bactam. I'm sorry. Maggie does love Tezo Bactam. I just like insulted her entire career. No. <laughs> okay. So Tezo Bactam is good. We just give lame. It has its deficiencies. We give lame doses, at least with ceftaltaza, we're giving three grams a day, right? Yeah. We're, we're getting better. We're giving more. We should give six grams of all the inhibitors like we do with Weber Bactam, and then maybe we'd be in a different place. Exactly. Um, okay. So not lame. Very amazing. <laughs> Maggie can eloquently describe. This needs to be optimized. And in, in, well, it is an inducer of AMPC. So, but you have an, a, a more narrow spectrum beta-lactamase inhibitor, let's put it that way, and then a really beautiful novel cephalosporin. Um, and I think those are the, the nuances for this BLBLIs. Uh -huh. Antonio, what I miss? 
I appreciate you nodding along. I feel like I. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I like no, no. I mean, I, 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 I like very much this this topic. No, so, and I agree with all the, all your points. Yes, just to to comment uh, a bit. Of course, uh, you could have thought about meropenem baulactan not being uh, equal to penem relevatan, and that's just, that's because uh, what we have talked. No, um, resistant to meropenem is not really influenced by by AMPC, but just uh, OPRD and and, uh, and deflux pump makes AB. So baulactan will not uh, add uh, anything there, no? as opposed to independent relevant time. So maybe it is time to, to go uh, and a step uh, forward, no? because we have talked about overexpression of, uh, of AMPC and how uh, these uh, two uh, novel approaches, no? either a more stable cephalosporin that is ceftolothan or to use a, a, a potent inhibitor like avivactan can overcome, overcome uh, the overexpression of AMPC. But what we are uh, seeing is that the resistance to these two novel combinations can be achieved by mutations in the uh, catalytic center of AMC, especially in, in the omega loop, you know, modifying the substrate again of the, of the enzyme, making it uh, very efficient for uh, hydrolyzing uh, uh, cephalosporins and generally conferring cross resistance between ceftolothane, tazobactam, and ceftazium ibactam. But the good point uh, about these uh, structural mutations is that when you mutate AMC to increase the, the efficiency of hydrolysis towards cephalosporins, you completely abolish the uh, capacity of this enzyme to hydrolyze imipenem. So the good po point about uh, these uh, resistant mechanisms that is uh, when you de develop resistance to ceftolosane or ceftazimibactan, you generally become very susceptible to imipenem or imipenem relevactan. This may have, and we, we may discuss this uh, later on, no? as therapeutic uh, option for rescue therapies or, or for some uh, alternative approaches. But uh, I mean, dealing with the uh, AMPC mediated resistance, we of course. Uh, have to be aware that AMC can be overexpressed, but also can be mutated for a more efficient uh, hydrolysis uh, of uh, particularly cephalosporins, and uh, that can be a major uh, resistant mechanism to these novel combinations, ceftolothane and ceftazimibactam, but not really for imipenem relevatan, in which uh, resistance, again, is more related to uh, OPRD mutation for the independent uh, part and overexpression or modification of efflux pump for the relevactam uh, uh, side of the of the combination. And to add on to that point, when you have OPRD mutation, less emipenem is getting into the cell, right? And then you are also having a combination of um, if your relibactam is being bound up by too many AMPC enzymes, it's going to overwhelm the little or small amounts of imipenem that achieves our target site. So in when you would think, oh, imipenem is active against AMPC, it is until a point that Aaron made earlier that until a specific point when you're overwhelmed by the beta-lactamases, will it work? And so if your relibactam is being busy, um, inhibiting all, all the other AMPCs, but there's still some AMPCs hanging around, coupled with a OPRD mutation, 
they're going to overwhelm the system. Yeah. There's only so much a little molecule can do, which is why we should give bigger doses of the beta lactamase inhibitors. But, oh yeah, that um, was my point. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> that was my yeah. point. We need to give more beta lactamase yeah. inhibitor. Um, yes. so we don't have to experience this. Yeah. yeah but, but so far, I mean, the, the experience that, uh, what he's saying is that is relevatan is more compromised by, uh, efflux than the, by saturation of, for uh, MC over expression that, I mean, that's what, what we see until now, no? So it's more concerning no? the, the, the flux pump that the, that the because it's, it is a good inhibitor and, uh, uh, and imipenem is quite, quite stable against MC. So, I mean, so even, maybe ceftazidine, maybe Bactam would have been a better example. Yes. <laughs> well, I have a question on that. Actually, I have a lot of questions. I'm taking notes because we're going to come back to all these things. Um, but first, where we are here now about relobactam being impacted by efflux. So two, two questions. One, can, could you, in theory, Maggie and I are big fans of giving big doses of, of drugs. So uh, if you haven't picked that up yet, but could you overcome efflux, even the efflux pump mutations you were describing that hyper efflux, essentially, is that a dose dependent phenomenon? So if you just give more drug, can you overcome that? Can you keep more drug in the cell or no? Do the pumps like tend to keep up with the drug amount? That's a question yeah. for you. Okay, for me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the. I don't know, I the, don't answer. know the answer. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm curious. No, I'm I, curious I, I, from your because I would be like, sure, give a ton of drug, saturate mm, those pumps. Is that not the case? I mean, it, it could be, but uh, with the current uh, doses, I mean, uh, it can uh, overexpression of this pump can be a, a a limiting factor. And as I said, not only overexpression, but a structural mutation make, uh, making it more efficient you know so yeah. it's but well, uh, you mentioned that before the, the, the very nice uh, work by Ryan Seals no on, the, on this uh, I mean before that we have made uh, made uh, in vitro evolution experiments with the with imipenem uh, and imipenem relevactan no and and actually what what we predicted in vitro is what is seen no with uh, in this paper by by Ryan, no? so at the end, the, the, for imipenem relevatan, the combination of OPRD plus the overexpression uh, and maybe modification of MEX-AB and also MEX-EF, MEX-EF is also a relevant one. One can think that this could be the most uh, relevant limiting factor for, for, for imipenem relevatan. No? Okay. Cool. And, and I do think for our audience, it is important to know a key point Antonio just said is that these resistance mechanisms can be a result of hyperexpression or overexpression of the wild type enzyme essentially, or the wild type pump or, and, or you can have structural mutations that change hydrolytic profiles or change efficiency with which the pumps operate, et cetera. And you can have both at the same time too. So it's sometimes not even as simple as saying, oh, the enzymes present or, oh, there's efflux, um, which is, which is really interesting. The last thing, since we did bring up efflux again, I, I did want to ask and point out because we didn't talk about it earlier. We have, so in the lab and like when, you know, you and Ryan and others are testing uh, and looking for efflux, you can use, um, what is it? It's like PA beta N is an efflux inhibitor molecule. And, and so that's how you can kind of show in the lab that efflux is present and, and whatnot, but we've never successfully developed an efflux pump inhibitor molecule to give to humans to overcome these mechanisms of resistance. Why is that, Antonio? Do you, do you know um, how, why these compounds haven't been successful for clinical care? 
Well, I mean, uh, all the, the, the many uh, uh, flux inhibitors uh, that uh, we have uh, developed or, or tested uh, until now, the problem that they have is that they are very toxic because they are not so specific. So, I mean, toxicity is a, is a point to, to consider uh, here, no? but uh, there are at least some, uh, some uh, inhibitors that are, uh, I mean, uh, have some perspective, no? No, but not, not all, the, all the first, because the, all the first uh, inhibitors that we tested and we used in vitro for, 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 for analyzing flux mediated resistance, they are, they are very toxic. So not possible to use them as a, as a real uh, a solution, but, but maybe the, in the future, we will be able to, to develop some that are really specific for us flux inhibitor. Interesting. Yeah. So right now, not much we can do about efflux clinically, unfortunately, which is, no. which is interesting. Um, okay. Another point you made that I want to make sure we emphasize is that going back to AMPC, so going back to, we were in the beta-lactamase space and discussing enzymes with AMPC, either hyper, with AMPC structural mutations, um, we, that confer ceftolazine and ceftazidime resistance, we can see this collateral susceptibility to imipenem. Does that hold, I guess is my question. So if I have a ceftolazine tazobactam, ceftazidime avibactam resistant isolate, that's from AMPC mutations. And then that isolate is imipenem susceptible. I guess one, can I, can I treat my patient with imipenem? Are we comfortable with that? Um, and then two, would we expect that, you know, imipenem would then be susceptible for multiple treatment courses or once you expose it to imipenem, you kind of revert right back. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is a very, very interesting uh, issue. In fact, I mean, if you have this case, you select resistant to ceftolosane or ceftazimaibatan through these uh, mutations. The problem is that you will not eliminate the wild type uh, AMC variant, no? If so, if you change to imipenem, I mean, there is a high possibility that we, you will end up with the, with the original phenotype, no? So, Maybe an alternative uh, to this is to, instead of using the imipenem the second time, use imipenem relevactan. Imipenem relevactan will be active to both the, the original, the parent strain that is uh, uh, susceptible to ceftolosane and also the, the ceftolosane resistant uh, uh, mutant. So, uh, uh, that could be an alternative uh, no, to, to, to use, not a carbapenem, but imipenem uh, relevatan as rescue therapy when uh, resistance is developed to ceftolosane or ceftazim ibactan. That, that would, buy, would be my, my suggestion because the, the risk with imipenem is, okay, you will uh, uh, easily uh, start again with the original phenotype that is uh, resistant to imipenem. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then what about call then? So I think the time has come, friends, to bring call into the podcast discussion. <laughs> um, so we talked about AMC a lot. call, of course, is a cephalosporin. So do we see the same cross-resistance with call? If you, if ceftolazine tazobactam is resistant and ceftazidime avibactam is resistant, is call going to be susceptible? The mutations in the omega loop of AMC that confers uh, uh, resistance to ceftolosane and ceftazidime do increase 
the MICs of Cefiurocol. Okay, that's okay. that okay. that is true. But that means that Cefiurocol is uh, resistance. Uh, not really. I mean, uh, because the the Cefiurocol uh, issue is that that it, it reaches a very very high uh, concentration in the periplans due to do, to the iron uh, uptake system. So the the problem that I see with Cefiurocol is that it's quite easy to mutate the the iron uptake systems like uh, uh, Pirei or Pirei that, or PUA. There are several of these uh, uh, systems that can be easily mutated and high level resistance could be achieved by, but if there, if the, there is a, a, a very high uh, entrance of Cefiderocol, uh, th there will be an increase in the, in the MICs, but not reaching the the resistance uh, breakpoints, no. So of course, uh, uh, it does play a role in the system, but uh, we have to be aware of the of the uh, of the concentration of the pericol that is uh, reached in the periplasma that is very high. No? So the uh, uh, resistance mechanisms are actually quite challenging. No? So we have to look. Uh, uh, not only to the porins, flux pans, beta lactamases, but also to the iron uptake system. So it's quite challenging for, for, for studying it because there are uh, still quite a few uh, knowledge uh, gaps no, to, to, to be filled. Interesting. Okay. And then Safiterical transitions us well into the last question I want to ask about enzymes, which is acquired enzymes. So we spent a lot of time in intrinsic because it is very interesting and complicated with pseudo, um, but it can also um, pick up plasmids and, and develop acquired mechanisms of resistance too, just not commonly. And so when we think about ESBLs or even carbapenemases, you know, how common are we seeing those in pseudomonas? And is that something we should really be thinking about? Maggie, do you want to start? Yeah, so carbapenemases definitely are an issue when it comes to pseudomonas. Um, a wide variety of carbapenemases have been described in pseudomonas, ranging from KPCs to metallobetalactamases to oxacarbapenemases. So it's a wide variety of different um, carbapenemases, and that plays into your therapeutic approach. As we discussed before, think about what beta-lactamase inhibitor would be most important depending on what carbapenemase is at play here. Um, so yes, I would say that it's well-described in pseudomonas, but the variety is vast. And, and well-described, but not common overall, right? I, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, not common, um, definitely in comparison to like porn and efflux mutations. And it's very geographically related. Like for instance, yes. here in Texas, we don't experience very many uh, uh, carbapenemases in our pseudomonas, at least. Yes. What about uh, you? I, I think that the, the geographical issue here is, is very important. So we should be aware, I mean, this is, a, of course, a resistant development is something important, but uh, the epidemic spread of the strains, it can be uh, very important, not in uh, maybe in places where, no, with, where infection controls works very well, but uh, in many countries, uh, the, the major problem with pseudomonas is uh, epidemic strains that do also harbor uh, acquired beta-lactamases. No? There are several epidemic clones that they are increasing uh, uh, worldwide and will reach uh, probably US uh, at some point. No? For example, in, 
in Spain before uh, 2008, we didn't have epidemic strains uh, of Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and, and now uh, we are talking about 15 or 17 percent of the of the Pseudomonas that we have are this type of epidemic strain. So it's something that we need to to consider because uh, this is, is a growing uh, threat. No clones like Stitch. 235, I mean, it's a worldwide distributed clone that is uh, highly virulent. Uh, so, I mean, it's something that we need to consider. So, regarding uh, ESBLs and carbapenemases, very, very local, uh, very, the local epidemiology is very, very important. There are countries in Eastern Europe, for example, with prevalence over 50% of uh, strains producing this type of carbapenemases. So, it depends on where you are. Uh, living, no? so, but it's something that we need to know. So metallo-betalactamases are globally the, the ones more frequent in, in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. There are some uh, class A enzymes, not too many KPCs, maybe in South America a bit, but uh, mostly uh, MBLs like BIM are the most frequent. So ESBL, the same, very, very uh, geographically distributed, the pair and the BEP enzymes are uh, major problems in, in several countries, in Asia, in, in Eastern Europe, but again, linked to epidemic strains. No? But I would like to uh, just, when talking about acquired uh, beta-lactamases, I would like to point uh, your attention to just some uh, narrow spectrum enzymes that are very frequent uh, in pseudomonas that are the narrow spectrum oxanzymes, like OXA2 or OXA10. They are very frequent, uh, the most frequent acquired enzymes worldwide. They are not really so important because, I mean, they are, can be effectively, effectively treated with uh, uh, third generation cephalosporins and so on, because they are narrow spectrum, but they are very frequent. I say this because this, uh, narrow spectral oxas are a major emerging uh, resistant mechanisms to the novel uh, cephalosporin combinations. So when you treat a patient uh, that uh, has a pseudomonas that is susceptible to ceftafimibactam or to ceftolothaintazobactam, but produces an oxa-2 or an oxa-10, if this patient is treated, it will frequently uh, develop resistance, not by a mutation in AMP-C, but in a mutation in the, uh, this narrow spectrum oxa that can be uh, converted into an extended spectrum oxa. So I want uh, to point out this because this is a very frequent uh, 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 resistant mechanism to this novel combination. So it's something that we may uh, need to look into in the future, not only uh, the intrinsic uh, resistant mechanism, but uh, if your pseudomonas uh, Produces, produces an OXA2 or an OXA10, which is very frequent, you will have a, a higher likelihood of a development resistance if you use the Tathimibatan or the Tolosane for treatment. So just to... Wow. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because when we think of ESBLs, we think of CTXMs, which we see in our E. coli and our clubs. But again, Pseudomonas is just a different player here and they have ESBLs. OXA-related ESBLs that impacts of Tazidim. Um, so it's just a different thought process in a way um, in regards to the resistant mechanisms and how they differ from our interbacterales. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you guys. That's so interesting. Um, I did not know that about uh, the oxy mutation. So that's very interesting. Before we move on to our last mechanism of resistance, I just want to ask, so for our listeners, if they're thinking about, um, because pseudomonas, we preach, know your local epi so frequently, right? And this was, this is, I think for most parts of the United States, at least your primary MDR pseudodrug is either ceftolazine tazobactam or ceftazidime avibactam. And we say, which one you position empirically or first should be driven by your local epidemiology. And you should ideally be testing all of your isolates to these agents to know which one has the highest likelihood of being susceptible. And, and we know that important concept, but generally, if I'm thinking regions of the world that have metallobetalactamase harboring pseudomonas, what are those, so to speak, hot spots? And I think you said VIM was the most common metallo, um, but what, what places should we be thinking? Uh, you mean places in the world where the, they are prevalent? Yeah. I mean, uh, like if I admit a patient from Spain, I mean, should I be concerned about them producing pseudomonas? Yes. Uh, let, let's say that in Spain, the prevalence of uh, MBLs is like 3%. Okay. Fine. 3% is something that uh, it can be you know, afforded. So it's less than 5%. But if you go to uh, Croatia or to uh, to Eastern Europe, it can be over 50%. No? So, I mean, uh, it's uh, very, very frequent. So uh, there, you, there you have a, a very serious problems in this, in this Eastern Europe countries, also some uh, countries from Asia, and so that would be the, the hottest spots for, for these uh, metallobetalactamases. But again, as I said, they are linked to epidemic clones. That means that the, in a country with, with, with a low prevalence uh, of, uh, of MBLs, you can have a hospital with a large outbreak for, for this type of strain. So it's something that, so infection control here, you know, so uh, epidemiological surveillance. So it's something that it has to be looked also for, no? because yes, yeah. here in, in Spain, we have a, a hospitals that have a, a, an outbreak of, uh, MBL producing a strain for 10 years. So it's not, uh, it's not easy to get rid of them. So. Yeah, for sure. So I guess to our listeners, the take home messages know this can happen, um, especially if you see a pan resistant pseudomonas that should trigger something to explore. Um, and you know, local epidemiology as always is the main driver of a lot of treatment decisions, but we are a global connected community. So know where things are coming and things can spread. And this is the beauty and, and complexity of antimicrobial resistance. So to round out our resistance mechanisms, the last thing we have to talk about is, is target site. And so with beta-lactams, that is penicillin binding proteins, we think of this as a gram positive thing, right? MRSA. And so do we, for gram negatives for Pseudomonas aeruginosa is altered penicillin binding proteins, a mechanism that we should consider. And Maggie, I'm going to go to you for this one. Yeah. So alterations in penicillin binding proteins is a mechanism that has been described in pseudomonas, but not to the extent that we have seen in gram positives or other gram negatives. Um, because really like, why do you need an altered penicillin binding protein when you have other, these other mechanisms of resistance? Um, so pseudomonas just has a plethora of options here. The anti-pseudomonal cephalosporins appear to bind to PBP3, while carbapenems are mostly PBP2, but also bind to a variety of other penicillin binding proteins. Um, when it comes to resistance, 
Most of the data surrounds PBP3, 4, and 5, where we think of PBP5 as causing most of the organism's intrinsic resistance to our non-pseudomonal um, beta-lactams, whereas changes in PBP4 have been described to result in amipenem resistance, and overexpression of PBP3 has been shown to increase MICs to agents like estrenam and cefepime. So not as, in my opinion, relevant in regards to causing resistance as our other mechanisms of action we spoke about. And I feel like this is definitely an ongoing area of research to understand, especially in relation to beta-lactamase production, um, because there is a correlation to penicillin binding proteins and um, beta-lactamase production, which ultimately also impacts susceptibility. Yeah, thank you. I think this is not pseudo, but for me, the fact that this got brought back to light and I was like, wow, gram negatives just really are smart bugs, um, was the NDM outbreaks with uh, Acetrinam resistant NDM. So they were resistant to ceftazidine, maybe back to him, Acetrinam combination therapy because Acetrinam wasn't binding in NDMs because of penicillin binding protein mutations. And it's like, wow, you just always think beta lactamases when you think gram negatives and other things. And we just keep in mind that the target matters too. Another fascinating thing about Pseudomonas is not just those resistance mechanisms, but then of course it's myriad of virulence factors, particularly relating to biofilms. And so Antonio, can you explain to us, I think this is a lot of your bread and butter, like, I guess, start what, what is a biofilm? <laughs> Why do bugs do that? And then what about pseudomonas makes it so difficult to treat and makes this such an important virulence factor for this organism? Okay. I, I will talk about uh, biofilms now, but I mean, uh, I also like uh, the PBPs uh, related resistance. Uh, maybe we can talk about some. Oh some yeah, we later, can go but... back to PBPs. Yes. This is breakpoints. No, you because, can do what you want. Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> I want to hear no, no, what Antonio because... has to say. He's enlightening no, no. me so uh, much. We yes. will focus you know, on because, PBPs. Because it is true that PBPs has, not, has been neglected as, uh, as a, uh, a major uh, resistance mechanism in, in gram negative in general, and in particular in pseudomonas, but especially because of the introduction of the, these uh, novel uh, compounds that are either very stable against hydrolysis by beta-lactamases or stable against uh, efflux. So that uh, it's uh, making that uh, uh, the PVPs mediated resistance gains relevance. No? So just uh, a, a few points. Uh, actually, PV4, PV4 is uh, one of the major regulators of AMPC, you know, PVP4, uh, is, the, is the one that senses the, the beta-lactams. So when PVP4 is mutated, you have overexpression of AMPC, and actually is one of the major uh, mechanisms of, uh, of AMPC overexpression, PVP4. No? So it's involved in, uh, for example, uh, cestacidine resistance, but not because of the PVP itself, because it is a regulator of the of the beta-lactamase MC. Oh, and, so also, and also I would highlight uh, uh, PVP3. PVP3 is a major uh, uh, PVP that, uh, again, as we have talked about efflux, uh, beta-lactamases, the catalytic center of uh, PVP3 can be mutated. And these uh, mutations in PVP3 confer resistance to all uh, beta-lactams except imipenem, because imipenem is not really binding PVP3, 
but it does confer resistance to meropenem because uh, meropenem uh, depends a lot on, on PvP3 activity. So I, I just wanted to highlight this because it's a, we see it uh, 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 more frequently now because uh, of the introduction of these uh, novel beta-lactams that P, the PUP's uh, mutations as a emerging resistant mechanisms to, to, to beta-lactams. No? So yeah, just, that is... just leaving imipenem uh, uh, out, but not, for example, cefiderocol. PUP3 mutation is a relevant mechanism of cefiderocol resistance. So uh, uh, something that we will have to consider in the, in the future, no? the PUP mutations in the in resistance to yeah. particularly these novel, novel compounds. Okay. That's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, it is important. I, I completely forgot too about how PVPs regulate AMC. So that's, that's fascinating. Thank you for that. Um, okay. Yeah. Anything else on PVPs or should we talk biofilms? We can move to biofilms. Sorry. Okay. I, I just wanted to. <laughs> no, I love I like that was the... <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, no, that was super interesting and important. So thank you for, thank you for going back. Um, I think the floor is yours though, if you want to dive into. This yeah, process. I mean, uh, the, the, the biofilms are organized bacterial communities that are embed embedded in an extracellular polymeric uh, matrix that is either attached to, to a living uh, or, a, or a, biot a biotic surface, or even as most uh, recent uh, work so they can be even uh, uh, forming aggregates that are floating in the you know, in, in, in liquid, not, not necessarily to be attached. So this is this super super cellular structure uh, is uh, a mode of growth that is characteristic of, of chronic infection. It can occur in some acute infection, but is very characteristic of uh, chronic infections in which they determine that uh, uh, persistent uh, uh, infection despite uh, uh, treatment with seemingly appropriate uh, antimicrobial treatment. No? So it's generally assumed that uh, bacteria growing as biofilm are between 100 and 1,000 fold uh, uh, higher uh, resistant, no? uh, higher resistant as compared with uh, free living uh, planktonic uh, Cells. And this is because uh, a combination of uh, tolerance, uh, tolerance mechanisms that are physical, not because of the penetration, physiological, because of the state, the dormant state of the of growth of the cells forming a, a, a biofilm, are also because of the uh, differential expression of, uh, of biofilm genes that make the, the at the end, no, the, the bacteria highly. Uh, refractory to the eradication with antibiotics. So there is a, this, is, this, is, this tolerance uh, state that also is uh, the perfect setting for uh, developing a classical resistant mechanism. So the, this, uh, the biofilm is very frequently mutate to, uh, to, to develop resistance or even they are uh, very uh, 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 ideal settings for horizontal uh, gene, uh, gene transfers as well. So at the end, uh, a biofilm is uh, something that is uh, nearly impossible to, to, to eradicate just with uh, conventional uh, antibiotics. Yeah. yeah, so what do we do about that? And that I wanna transition into kind of thinking about treatment. And I think, so the IDSA guidelines are very nice. They outline, we've talked about all of our drug options for pseudomonas and they outline um, our treatment options for difficult to treat pseudomonas and things like that. Um, but what do we do if we have 
a pseudomonas isolate in our patient that's resistant to everything, even our novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. And I guess we can go ahead and say insofiterol call too, just to, I think we can get into the clinical controversy surrounding the sofiterol clinical data versus in vitro activity. That's not really the point of this podcast. So let's just say it's resistant to imirel, mirovabor, ceftazavi, ceftaltazo, and sofiterol. We'll say it's polymyxin susceptible. Um, and it's, um, let's call it an LVAD driveline infection, right? So we have biofilm in play. We have, un- we have hardware we can't remove. I mean, I think we all know these infections aren't treatable, but, um, and we, I guess we could do that. Something where we definitely have retained hardware and concern for biofilm formation and unable to control the source. That's a very different conversation than let's say just a VAP um, where that might be pan resistant. But what, what can we do when we get to the end of the line here, knowing how Pseudomonas has become resistant to all of our novel agents? Maggie, where you have a lot of experience with CF patients where we see these kinds of things and other patients, um, why don't you start and tell us your approach to these? Yeah, so I'll start with the non-biofilm scenario where we just have a completely pan-resistant MDR pseudomonas. So in this scenario, my first approach is to determine what the actual MIC is um, to assess if our potential drug exposures can surpass the MIC. For example, if the MIC is just one to two fold dilutions greater than the breakpoint, um, versus if our MIC is just completely out of the ballpark, we can potentially optimize our drug exposures by using high dose, longer infusions to overcome those MICs that are potentially closer to the breakpoint. Now, if that's not an option, or even if that is even if that still is an option, combination therapy and pseudomonas is very common. Um, and there's different motivations for combination therapy. While some thoughts are for dual therapy are to use two agents to enhance your probability of susceptibility, there's also an approach for promoting synergy, which in the case of multidrug resistant organisms, sometimes synergy is the best we can hope for when we don't have any other options. Um, So for pseudomonas, in vitro data has shown synergistic combinations of using aminoglycosides or polymyxins or even IV phosphomycin, acknowledging that, you know, we don't have IV phosphomycin in the United States, but um, in other nations they do, or other countries they do. um, And these have been shown to be synergistic with beta-lactams, including some of our novel agents like septolazine tazobactam. Um, For me personally, I love to start with my aminoglycosides as my synergistic or combination agent with my beta-lactams for a couple of reasons. One, we have good, um, reliable um, automated susceptibility testing for aminoglycosides. So we know what the MIC is. We know what, in theory, what we should be targeting from a drug exposure standpoint. And therapeutic drug monitoring is readily available at our institution. So we can be very strategic in how we dose the aminoglycosides in relation to what our MIC is. Um, But in polymyxin's defense, I feel like they probably have the strongest data for synergy, but dosing these agents can be very difficult due to the high variability in drug exposures between patients. And um, sometimes the accuracy in MIC that you're dealing with um, may not be reliable. Um, So I'll say that's the scenario of a a non-biofilm. Now, when you're dealing with biofilm, um, that's a more difficult question. And I feel like that's an area we definitely need more research on. We've had scenarios where we add on potential agents with biofilm activity, um, but in regards to clinical outcomes, 
I'm not sure I feel super strongly on one approach over the other. Have you ever used phage therapy in any of your patients? Yes. So we actually had a recent patient who had a pan-resistant pseudomonas um, that we did pursue phage therapy. Um, that was led by our ID transplant physician, Dr. Ricardo Lahaz, and our ID transplant pharmacist, Dr. Sarah Spitznagel. Um, this therapy was given intravenously and topically. Um, so it's interesting because phage therapy in this sense represents a bioengineered phage derived protein specific um, phage to the offending organism. While I do think this is an option in the setting of pan resistant organisms, accessibility to this option is difficult because you need specific engineering um, to the organism at play. And we know with Pseudomonas that they do have heteroresistant populations. And if you don't capture the population at play here, you can potentially miss um, treating the infection because your phage is specific to that specific organism. Yeah, I, exactly. And phages can adapt over time. The bug can adapt to the phage too. So um, you're kind of constantly screening the residual, um, like with driveline infections, for example, you could constantly be culturing the, the exit wound and sending it and lytic phages in the first couple of weeks may no longer work down the line. And so I think that is really, really interesting. Um, Antonio, anything to add? Are there like certain combinations of drugs that we should be considering that you're evaluating that are like really potent against these pain resistant isolates, anything that does work for biofilms? I mean, there is uh, a lot of initiatives uh, in this field regarding features. I, I agree that the features are a very, very good uh, future option, particularly when combined with antibiotics. I think that is a future strategy to, to, to consider. Of course, there are several you know, uh, uh, specific anti-biofilm strategies, but uh, uh, the truth is like, this is like uh, when we talk about efflux pumps inhibitors, okay, they are there. Uh, we, we can uh, uh, inhibit the biofilms in vitro, and it, but the field is not advancing so, so fast in there. No? There are some, uh, uh, some even some, uh, antibiotics like macrolides, for example, no, that can, they, they do, don't have an activity against uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but can inhibit uh, quite well the, the biofilms of Pseudomonas. And, and they have been used, uh, for example, in, uh, for many years in cystic fibrosis. And they, I mean, they improve the, the, no, the, 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 the patient, the, the patient that were infected by Pseudomonas, and we didn't know why, and why is, among other things that because uh, they do inhibit the uh, biofilm formation, for example. So that would be something to, to consider. Regarding combinations of, of classical uh, agents, uh, as Marie said, I, uh, I, I like particularly uh, cholistine as a, because it's a very good permealyzer and, and has a, a, potent, uh, a potent synergy with beta-lactams, even in strains that are resistant to beta-lactams. But of course, uh, I agree with Maggie that, uh, that uh, the use of cholistine probably is not uh, so uh, well established. And, uh, no, but, but it's something that is there, no? the, the use of cholistine as a permeabilizer of the, of the, of the membrane you know, to, to increase the activity of, of beta-lactans, for example. 
Of course, there are there are some uh, novel uh, themes coming. No, uh, I don't know if we should talk about uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, for example, the, the the this novel bicyclical hydrazids like see the back and all. No, I mean that new generation of beta-lactamase inhibitors that in addition to inhibit the beta-lactamase, they inhibit PVP2 and therefore have uh, intrinsic uh, anti-pseudomonal in this case activity and a high uh, synergy with uh, classical PVP3 inhibitors like ceftazidine so, or cefepin. So future combination like cefepin with cidebactam uh, and this in, in vitro and in, in vivo models of infection could even be used for the for the treatment of uh, MBL producing strains of pseudomonas aeruginosa. So probably this is a, another future approach for, 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 for overcoming these uh, resistant threats, but of course, well. Yeah, that's a great segue into my second to last question of the podcast. First, I'm very glad we didn't get to the end of this and not say azithromycin and quorum sensing. So I'm very happy that came up in some capacity. Um, but the last question I have is what are the, the greatest future areas of research? So we mentioned there are beta-lactamase inhibitors in development that do inhibit metallobeta-lactamases, which we do not have currently. So that is exciting. Um, but beyond that, what, in your opinion, what do you think are the greatest needs and future research areas for Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections? And Maggie, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I struggle with mucoid pseudomonas for multiple reasons. One, given like AST testing tends to be a little bit more difficult with mucoid pseudomonas. And in relation to that, the heteroresistance population that we see with mucoid and non-mucoid strains, specifically in cystic fibrosis patients. Um, and how does in vitro activity correlate to clinical outcomes? Um, Again, specifically in CF patients where they do have such a heteroresistant population, even if they do have some subclinical isolates that could be resistant to septolizing tazobactam, you know, traditionally they still can respond well to these agents. Another area that we struggle with clinically is the difference between colonization and true infection, especially patients in the ICU with trachs. Um, it's really difficult to understand um, in these scenarios what's colonization versus what's infection and just having a better understanding of those scenarios and um, how to treat them if needed. Thank and you. then, I mean, as we just discussed before, clinical combinations, especially in the setting of MDR pseudomonas um, and even more so in the setting of biofilm production, I think we're really at a loss at what the optimal clinical combinations are. And so appreciating and understanding that um, will definitely help improve, hopefully, clinical outcomes down the line. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think for me, I think it's, does combination therapy prevent resistance development? Um, I, I, I know we have old studies with combination therapy, but I think our new agents changed the game and I think there's still a lot to learn in that space. And it's like, we do good. Can we do even better um, in treating our patients? And I think that remains unknown. I think duration of therapy for pseudomonal VAP is still a big question mark. And that's way beyond the scope of this pod, but does recurrence or colonization, like does subsequent recurrence matter? Is it just colonization or did we just not eradicate the infection? Cause maybe it really does need to be treated longer. Who knows? And I know that's like voodoo to say something might be needed to treat longer, but 
I don't think the door is shut on that yet. Um, and then, yeah, just combination therapy that might suppress resistance development, I think is are interesting to me. Antonio, what about you? Uh, yes, I, I fully agree with the, with the points uh, raised. No? So chronic infections in general are, are a major uh, field to, 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 for improvement because we have gaps uh, at all levels, at the, uh, the diagnostic level and are also the treatment level. No? We, are, we are far for, from optimal uh, diagnostic, diagnostic approaches, far from optimal susceptibility testing uh, approaches, and mm -hmm. far from optimal treatment. So chronic infection by Pseudomonas aeruginosa, so biofilm-driven chronic infection is a major field of, of uh, research. Uh, regarding combination therapy, I fully agree, and, and, I, uh, uh, and it's uh, particularly relevant after the introduction of, the, of this novel uh, combination. So, but uh, I would like to, to say just uh, not only combinations, there are other uh, more, uh, I don't know, uh, innovative uh, way of using the two antibiotics than to combine them. No? For example, what I told you before, the, to use uh, uh, the cycling within a patient of, a, of, an, of an antibiotic to avoid resistance. For example, when we talk about uh, uh, how to avoid uh, resistance to cefazimabine or to ceftolosane, maybe we can imagine that uh, to give uh, a few days or, or a couple of days of ceftolosane and then switch to uh, imipenem uh, or imipenem-relevatan and then switch again, could be a, a better strategy to, to avoid resistance that given them uh, together, for example, or, or just one of them. No? So, I mean, uh, this is uh, uh, taking advantage of this uh, principle that we have talked about, that is that development of resistance to one of these antibiotics uh, determines an increase in the susceptibility to uh, another uh, antibiotics, even within the same family, that can be uh, Cephalosporins and carbapenem. So this is something that we have to uh, introduce in the in our treatment strategies and also in our antimicrobial stewardship strategies. No, because uh, uh, for example, no, I, I consider in a, an intensive care unit when we when we use cestolothane and cetacidim to treat uh, our patients, these uh, two uh, compounds uh, select for the same resistance mechanisms. So that should uh, increase resistance, but we can find strategies using uh, uh, simultaneously or, or sequentially antibiotics that have the opposite uh, resistance mechanisms. That when I use one, I will get rid of resistance to the other. So this is something that we should uh, study uh, further, both at the patient level at, at the ward level or hospital level. No? So it's something to, to consider in the future as well. Yeah, thank you for that. That's very interesting concepts. And I, I think a lot to learn in that space. And the time has come to the Breakpoints Faithful for our I Feel Nerdy section to round out the podcast. So this section of the pod is meant to be a safe space and a closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, I'm going to ask you each to share your favorite anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam and why. And Maggie, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, Ceftolazine tazobactam is 
my personal favorite. It will always have my heart. It's our first line agent here at UT Southwestern in Dallas for MDR Pseudomonas. I love it so much because unlike the newer agents, looking at ceftazidime avibactam who just threw on a beta-lactamase inhibitor to an already existing agent, I feel like that's a very predictable move, move in this day and age. And so instead they structurally enhanced ceftazidime basically to improve its pseudomonal activity. And I appreciate that. Um, I also think as we discussed before, tazobactam is underestimated due to its lack of PKPD optimization, but that's a different topic for discussion. Um, I also do have compassion for cefepime because I feel bad for its bad rep it gets for neurotoxicity. So I just feel bad for it sometimes. That's so funny. You love Tazobactam so much. I love Avibactam. Avibactam, I think is my favorite beta lactam. Oh, that's so funny. I just don't think we give enough of it. You know, I think okay, it, like, fair. I think, I think you're giving, you know, 1.5 grams a day. That's just, we didn't even give it a fair shot. Um, okay. Maybe I need to reassess my love for Avibactam. Cause I, I have never felt strongly for it. I just feel like it's just a weak cop out, but but it was our first, it's same as ceftolazane. It was our first inhibitor that, you know, took care of KPCs and other things. And like said, Vaporbactam is also lovely and Relobactam is also lovely, but Avibactam just like, that's how I felt. I was like, wow, these patients used to just die 30 to 40% of them. And now what eight to 10% die. Cause we have this drug that works. And that, like that moment that like seeing that and seeing that come out in clinical practice was like pretty incredible. Uh, so AB back I think has a sauce. <laughs> I do love septolazine though, too. I think it's just like a fascinating compound. So, um, okay. Antonio, what's yours? Well, actually for me, my favorite, uh, anti-semol beta-lactam is also septolazine, you know, and, and it is, uh, because, uh, I, I, I did have the opportunity to, to work, to analyze the, the potency and the stability against resistant mechanisms of septolazine many, many years ago, just, I mean, from the, from the beginning of, the, of when it was being developed in, the, in, in Japan over 15 years ago. And since the beginning, I, I really was fascinated by the, by the stability of these uh, cephalosporins against uh, mutational resistant mechanisms of, of Pseudomonas reginosa. So I think that uh, I really think is is the, is the best anti-Pseudomonal agents per se, no? So, and uh, I mean, so I, I, I do have a long history of, uh, of, of working with, with it. And uh, for that, uh, I like it. Of course, I, I also like, uh, for example, uh, I mean, I think it's a very uh, uh, brilliant approach that the Trojan horse, the uh, uh, mechanics of uh, entry of the cold. I think this is a very interesting uh, 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 approach. And also like uh, very much the combination of imipenem with relevactam because it combines uh, a, 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 a beta-lactam, a carbapenem that is uh, very stable against efflux, is not uh, a substrate for efflux, with a very potent uh, inhibitor of beta-lactamases. So they do work very well uh, together, imipenem with relevactam. So I, uh, I like it, uh, it as well. No? 
Awesome. I love how nerdy all of us are and how much we love our anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams. Um, with that, I cannot thank you guys enough for this discussion. I learned a ton. It was fascinating. Uh, we deep dove into everything pseudomonas aeruginosa. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours more about this bug and all of the neat things about it, but I hope, I know I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot and thank you guys again so much for your time. And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers today were Drs. Maggie Minogue and Antonio Oliver. This episode was supported by an unrestricted medical education grant from AbbVie. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Julianne Justo. Our production team includes Sasha Premrash, Adam Archer, and Kate Desir. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. That's me. And our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. <laughs>